0: Welcome to Fracking and Health, Ask an Expert. The Endocrine Disruption Exchange has been studying the health impacts from unconventional oil and gas development, also known as fracking, since 2004. In each episode, our Executive Director, Carol Kwiatkowski, asks an expert to answer a question on how fracking may affect your health. You can submit a question at TEDx.org.
1: Welcome to episode 13, where we ask, unconventional versus conventional oil and gas extraction, what's the difference? I'm talking today with Dr. Tony Ingrafia, the Dwight C. Baum Professor of Engineering Emeritus at Cornell University. He has co-authored over 250 papers on hydraulic fracturing mechanics, methane emissions, well bore integrity, and related topics. His awards, including Time Magazine's 2011 People Who Mattered, are truly too numerous to list. Welcome, Dr. Ingrafio.
0: Thank you very much. Good to be with you all today.
1: Let's start with the basics. How are conventional and unconventional oil and gas extraction defined, and what, in essence, is the difference?
0: The formal definitions of what are conventional and unconventional oil and gas wells change over the history of oil and gas production. For the purposes of today's uh, podcast and what we're going to be talking about unconventional now means getting oil and gas out of shale, out of tight sandstone or out of coal beds. Conventional oil and gas develops oil and gas from other sources, um, other than shale, other than tight sandstone and other than coal. Again, for the purposes of today, we're gonna to focus almost exclusively on the largest, the most pervasive of those three types of unconventional development, coming that coming from shale. Uh, this is what truly has happened, changed, emerged in the last 20 years, and has led to the resurgence of oil and gas production in the US to the point where today, the US is arguably the largest producer of oil and certainly is the largest producer of natural gas. That's almost exclusively because of unconventional development from shale. The essence of the difference is scale, S-C-A-L-E. By that, I mean size. So whereas in a conventional well, for example, one would drill straight down into a pool, an accumulation of oil or gas, and either strike it or miss it, In unconventional development of oil and gas from shale, you are virtually guaranteed that as long as you drill into and along the shale, that is drill down to it and then drill along it, you will get oil and gas. Scale also means that now your wells are gonna be longer because they're not only have to be drilled down, but they have to be drilled along the shale. A conventional well might be on on land 5,000 to 10,000 feet deep. A shale well will be 5 to 10,000 feet deep and then another 10 to 20,000 feet long. So first aspect of the shale is, the scale, is that the wells are longer. In a conventional well that's fracked, and make sure you understand that fracking occurs both in conventional and unconventional wells. In a conventional well that's fracked, the fracking fluid typically is on the order of a few hundred thousand gallons to maybe a million gallons. Whereas in a modern shale gas or oil well, the amount of fracking fluid is 15 to 20 million gallons, 10 to 20 times as as much, maybe 50 times as much. Uh, In order to get as much oil or gas out of shale as one can, the other scale effect is that you're drilling everywhere. Since there is gas, and or oil everywhere in a shale deposit that has gas or oil in it, you're going to want to drill wells everywhere. So the scale also means more wells per unit area than in a conventional situation where you're just trying to find a concentrated pool of oil or gas. Scale also means that you not only have a longer well, you not only are putting wells more frequently in area, It's gonna take longer to drill those wells, and you're going to be on the pad, the area in which the drilling occurs, much longer because you're not just going to drill one well. Again, you're gonna scale up, and on a pad, you're gonna drill many wells. And by many, I I mean eight, 10, 12, in some cases, as many as 50 wells from one pad, which means the activity on that pad scales up in time. A single conventional well could be drilled and fracked in a week or two, but if you're going to have 25, 30, 40 wells on one pad, each of which is longer, requires much more fracking fluid, uh, requires bigger drill rigs, requires higher capacity fracking equipment, higher capacity drilling equipment, uh, you could be on that pad for years. So those are the aspects of scale that make unconventional from shale much different from conventional in other rock types.
1: The practice of unconventional drilling and fracking, despite being new, has changed over the past 10 to 15 years. Can you talk about that?
0: Yes. Uh, in the beginning of what's now called the shale revolution, uh, the turn of the last century, uh, the industry largely thought that they could use the thinking, the technology, the equipment that they had been using in conventional wells and just bring in shale. And over a decade or so of experimentation, they found out that that largely, doesn't, largely does not work. So what has happened over the last 20 years is the industry began with what they now call generation one oil and gas wells and shale. And those wells typically went down to the shale, went along the shale, but the distance along the shale was just a few thousand feet. And the amount of fracking fluid used was typically on the order of three or four million gallons of fracking fluid, water plus chemicals. They also were only using perhaps a few hundred pounds of sand, so sand is used as a, what's called the industry calls a proppant. As you're injecting hydraulic fracturing fluid into the shale, you wanna prop open all the joints and cracks and, and bedding planes in the shale so that the gas or oil can flow more easily back to the well. That propping action is done by sand grains. So in generation one wells, the sand sand was typically a few hundred pounds for every one foot of well. But then the industry began to see that they could get a lot more oil or gas out of a well by scaling up. So generation two wells, which began to be drilled in say the 2008, 2009, 2010 period, the horizontal or the lateral part of the well, the well that went along the shale, grew from a few thousand feet to a mile or more. And the volume of fracking fluid went from a few million gallons to almost 10 million gallons on average. And the amount of sand being used went from a few hundred pounds, a few hundred pounds per foot, to multiples of that, four, or five, 600 pounds per foot. Now, what that means is that going from generation one to generation two, Much more water had to be consumed from each well. A higher volume of fracking chemicals had to be injected. A much higher volume and weight of sand had to be transported, typically from, say, Wisconsin to Texas or Wisconsin to Pennsylvania. And all that fluid, additional fluid and sand had to be injected with higher capacity pumps, again, scale. As we move into the last four or five years, the industry has evolved again into what they're now calling generation three wells. These are what we call state of the practice. A state of the practice well has a lateral that is no longer a few thousand feet or a mile long, it's two miles long or longer. So the total length of the well might be a mile down and then two or three miles out. Volume of fracking fluid has now gone way above 10 million gallons, and in many cases more than 20 million gallons per well. There's a concomitant increase in the volume of chemicals that need to be added to that increased volume of water. And we're now at a point where for every one foot of length of the well, they are using over one ton of sand. So if a well is 10,000 feet long, two miles, that's 10,000 tons of sand has to be transported to a well pad for each well it has to be mined someplace transported usually by train and then locally by truck and then injected along with the fracking chemicals and the fracking water so what's evolved in summary over the last 20 years is evolution the industry learns from its mistakes learns how to optimize a well by optimization I mean What's the least number of dollars you can put down the well to get the most oil or gas out? And what they found again and again is scale it up, make everything bigger.
1: The scale factor is astounding. What impacts does it have on waste disposal?
0: The primary impact is, again, scale. You have more waste. Since the well is longer than in a conventional well, you're going to have more drilling waste and more drilling mud waste to dispose of. And because you're now using not just a million or two gallons of fracking fluid, you're going to have millions, five to 10 million gallons of waste fluid. After the stimulation process, which is sometimes called fracking, much of the fluid that was injected comes back to the surface. And it's now a hazardous material. It contains not only traces of the fracking chemicals, but it contains whatever it picked up underground uh, while it was doing its job and transported back to the surface. So whereas in a conventional well, you might have a few tens of thousands of gallons of waste fluid, and in a generation well, you might have had perhaps a million gallons of waste fluid. In a current generation well, you could have 5, 10, or more million gallons of waste fluid. So the waste, disposal, waste transport, waste storage, waste disposal problems has also scaled up. The most important thing that's scaled up is risk.
1: And how does all this impact health?
0: Higher risk of something going wrong means higher risk of impact on health. When you're drilling and producing from a conventional well, you still have the problems um, related to human health of the potential for spills on the surface, which could get into public drinking water, uh, underground contamination from a leaking well getting into drinking water, You still have the problem of diesel emissions on the surface from drilling and fracking activity with NOx and ozone creation. And you still have the problems with transporting all this equipment and materials causing road hazards. Well, that's conventional. I'm repeating myself again. When you go to generation three unconventional, all that has scaled up. You no longer have a few hundred truck trips. You can have thousands of truck trips. You no longer have to worry about perhaps a small spill from a few thousand gallons of waste fluid, but now you're potentially having to have multiple spills from having to store and transport many million gallons of waste fluid. Uh, And even more importantly, coming back to this issue of scale of how many wells per unit area, I would challenge anybody listening to this podcast to go to Google Earth and zoom in on an area in Texas called the Barnett, look around the western part of Dallas, just to the west of Dallas, or go into Susquehanna County, Pennsylvania, uh, or go to South Texas in the Eagle Ford. Use Google Earth and take a look at the number of well pads you're going to see. On Google Earth, they will just appear like little white rectangles. And if you zoom in, You'll see on each of those white rectangles, you're gonna see multiple wellheads, and you're gonna see ancillary infrastructure. That's an invasion because what you're gonna see on those Google Earth images is there are people living around all that. There are schools around all that. There are hospitals and businesses around all that.
1: So what do you suggest local communities and nonprofits do to combat these issues?
0: First and foremost always is education get the facts, not alternate facts, the real facts. I think I'm being absolutely honest with you today and saying everything I've just communicated is true. It's factual. So read what the industry says, read what the opposition says, and then decide for yourself who's telling the truth. Make sure that you use every peaceful means necessary to inform your fellow citizens and your regulators and your legislators of your desire, your personal desire, and your community's desire. You do that by writing letters to the editor, attending meetings, uh, doing testimony before your legislators, meeting with your legislators at the city level, at the county level, at the state level, and informing them of what you learned about unconventional gas development and unconventional oil development, and what part of it you want and what part of it you don't want. Uh, vote. Right. All these decisions about where something is going to be allowed essentially always come down to a political decision. As I mentioned, some states like New York, Maryland, prohibit unconventional oil and gas development. There are a few others that do. There are provinces in Canada that prohibit it. There are countries in Europe that prohibit it. So they have educated themselves on what are the facts. And there are many places now, after 20 years of unconventional development from shale, where there are large repositories of peer-reviewed literature, scientific literature, not blogosphere blah blah, but scientific literature. And that literature increasingly says that the risks that I just highlighted here are real. So at the local level, whether you're an individual or you're representative of a not-for-profit very much concerned about fossil fuel development, start with education. Next, talk to the people who are the stakeholders, and then go to the people who control the process, your regulators and your legislators. Do it peacefully, do it professionally.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Engrafia. That's great advice, and will be very helpful to our listeners.
0: It's been an honor talking to all of you, and I hope everything I said today becomes useful to you in your local affairs. TEDx is a nonprofit research institute funded by grants from private foundations and by donations from individuals like you who care about our health and the environment. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider making a tax-deductible gift to TEDx so we can continue bringing you the most up-to-date scientific information on the impacts of fracking on your health. Please visit our website at TEDx.org for more information on what we do, to submit a question for an expert. Or to make a donation. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.